Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone to the Aging Fearlessly radio podcast. This is Karen Sander and my guest today is a Sydney-based author and GP, Dr. Joanna Nell. Joanna has a passion for women's health and the aging population, both of which were catalysts for her first novel, The Single Ladies of Jacaranda Retirement Village. Welcome, Joanna. It's an honour to have you here and joining us today. Well, thank you for that introduction, Karen. It's an honour to be uh, talking to you on your wonderful podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks. I have so much fun on this podcast. Honestly, it really lights me up to learn about people and what they do, especially when it comes to ageing, because it's an ageing fearlessly podcast. So, Joanna, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, now I am a writer and a GP. I grew up in the UK in a small market town in the right in the middle of England. And from a very early age, I was well, I was quite an introverted child, um, loved stories, reading books, and always dreamed of becoming an author. But of course, went on to study medicine. That's how you become a GP, a, a doctor. And um, it was really only very recently in life, um, having worked as a, a GP, been well done many jobs actually within the medical profession. I was a busy working mother that, um, and well into my 40s, actually, before I became a writer, too. So I published my first novel at the age of uh, 52 and sort of feel as though I've um, had a second career. So I'm still working part time as a, a GP and um, also busy writing more books, which is my passion. Well, it sounds like you keep incredibly busy. Because we know writing is not for the faint-hearted. It can be fun, but it's also very, very time-consuming. And I do take my hat off to people who write novels. I, I mean, I have written a book, Aging Fearlessly, but it's not a novel. So I'm not developing characters. I'm sort of writing facts and information about my life and lifestyles. But writing a novel is so much more difficult. So well done you, because it's not easy. <laughs> Thank you. I think if it, if it wasn't uh, so much of a passion, it would feel like a, a chore, but it's something that I love to do. It's something I do for my own rest and relaxation and mental well-being as much as anything. I want to bring up something that I have read about you. Is it true that a teacher, when you're eight years old, told you not to become a doctor it is true actually yeah so um it was we were going around the class and I remember the teacher was asking everybody what they wanted to be when they grow up and there were the usual answers uh, you know back then everybody wanted to be a footballer or a 
um, you know, teacher or, a, you know, firefighter or something like that. And I'd been watching something, I think, on TV the, the night before, Emergency Ward 10 or one of those sort of medical dramas. We, we watched quite a bit of television when I was uh, growing up. And so when I said I wanted to be a doctor, the teacher sort of was quite taken aback. And she said to me, uh, this was 1974 as well. So it wasn't exactly 1874. But I remember she said, um, oh, well, that's very difficult for uh, for a girl, for a woman to become a doctor. Um, it's really something that that boys do. Men become doctors and, and women become nurses. And. I think that, that there was absolutely nothing that I had against nursing, but I think if somebody told me that I couldn't do something, it made me even more determined. So I like to joke that back in 1974, I became a feminist and uh, probably that teacher was the main reason that I decided to, to, to study uh, medicine and uh, yeah, I haven't looked back since then. Well, a lot of us can recall that many, many different careers were segregated into masculine and feminine roles you know things like firemen ambos all of those teachers teachers were more it was more prevalent that teachers were female and today it's very difficult to get men to move into teaching possibly yeah. from the pay gap <laughs> but, but um you know so many roles were then you know um put you know there that sorry I can't even get my words around this but you know men went into certain roles women went into others and it was interesting that she thought that you could not be a doctor you proved her wrong so Joanna um we actually both worked on cruise ships I've read yes uh <laughs> yeah that was uh I'm sure a very exciting and entertaining part of both our, our lives. I actually came away with a husband, which was which was something that really I wasn't expecting. I sort of ran away to see at a time when I'd finished my GP training and I wasn't quite ready to sort of settle down into practice. And I was looking for a little bit of um, adventure uh, and I, oh, I have to say it was really changed my life. I had two years which were um, great fun, full of challenges. I traveled the world and I, yes, I fell in love with the second engineer who is um, who's my husband now. So and my son actually is training now to be a marine engineer himself. So he's the second generation who's off to sea and, and working on cruise ships as well. So he is actually um, working in not not within defense force but just within yes he's Marima. he's just qualified as uh he's a fully fledged um he calls himself a fully fed fledged bilge rat now so he is a marine engineer and he is two weeks away from starting his first job on a cruise ship so uh yeah oh obviously goodness. taking a leaf out of his parents book well i mean i i had a a stint over two years in 1979 and 1980 where I worked as uh, well I started as a stewardess on board a ship because my hairdresser had said mm, I've just come off the ships why don't you have a go at it and I, I sort of applied and it was pretty easy to get a job so I got a job on the Fair Star which most people of my generation in Australia know the Fair Star it was a fun ship. <laughs> After one cruise, they found out that I was a teacher by profession and asked me to step up and 
work with the children. And then after one cruise of doing that, I became the junior cruise director, organising the programs on board. Uh, and it was a bit of fun. Uh, I enjoyed it. Fortunately, I didn't suffer from seasickness, uh, as many of my colleagues on board did. And yeah, over two years, I did a few stints on board and, um, you know, I learned a lot. <laughs> and that's the end of that conversation. <laughs> I learned a lot. I saw it's a certainly lot. an eye opener. Yeah, mm. it is an eye opener. Well, today we're going to talk about ageing and my mother has just gone into a nursing home, Joanna, at the age of 93 and a half, and she actually told us she wanted to go into a nursing home, which I think is very uncommon because most people fight going into a nursing home. What is it about nursing homes that people don't like? Yeah, look, I think that given the choice, most people would choose to age in their own homes. And I try to think about this. Is this because uh, there's a you know, fear of sort of letting go and a loss of independence? Um, is it a, a fear of what is to them maybe unknown or, uh, you know, what they've seen their own parents go through or, or um, you know, negative experiences around uh, nursing homes? Um, so it's unusual as your, your mother's experience is unusual, um, but there definitely are a, a section of, of people who would sort of buy into that more of a lifestyle choice. And for some, it really can be life changing. I, I've certainly had um, patients that I've looked after who have thrived in a nursing home setting. They've maybe been someone who's been struggling for quite a while at home in the community, um, struggling with chronic diseases and uh, disability, struggling to, with the upkeep of a house. They may not have family who are available to, to help them, uh, may not have been eating very well. And when they go into um, an aged care facility, um, it can be a whole new community of, of people, not only the other residents, but the staff uh, and new relationships, um, even some romantic relationships as well, but certainly a lot of new friendships. Um, you know, the nutrition is taken care of. And once you have that input of allied healthcare, the physio and the podiatrist and the speech therapist, um, um, you know, really good medical care and nursing care in a lot of cases. I've seen many people thrive, actually. So for some people, it can be a very positive experience. Um, and people can even I've seen people even improve to the point where they've actually been too good for, for that level of care and have moved back out into the community again. Um, but for some, there's, there's no doubting that it's a, a confronting experience where, you know, they face that loss of identity, um, loss of independence. Um, and it can be, you know, it, it can be something that um, that a lot of people do fear and do anything fighting and screaming, not don't put me in a nursing home is yes. something that we hear time and time again. So there's a lot of interesting things that have happened over the, the last few years. We hear a lot of negatives about nursing homes and poor care and uh, abuse, etc. And there's been a Royal Commission. So why did Australia need a Royal Commission into aged care quality and safety? The Royal Commission happened, um, it took over two years and it was announced back in September 
2018. Um, and it actually was announced on the eve of a Four Corners two-part special on the ABC, um, which was investigating or uncovering, if you like, a, a lot of um, the, it was a crowdsourced investigation, um, revealing a lot of the abuse and uh, neglect that we've been seeing. And there were really some ugly images that, that came out of that um, Four Corners investigation. Um, and they had 4,000 people that came forward um, in their uh, in response to, to their calling for stories. So it's, it's interesting whether it's a chicken and egg situation, but I think that uh, certainly the Royal Commission, I think is, a, is something that we had to have. It's certainly not something new. And over the last 20 years, there have been numerous um, inquiries and reports. And so this is something that has been sort of building for a long time. And we could, I suppose, see that sort of four corners as a, a sort of pivotal point. And I think part of this, we have to understand the history of aged care in order to, in order to understand where, why we got to this crisis point. So I might just go, go over that a little bit, if that's okay. Absolutely. You know, this has been a crisis that hasn't come out of the blue. And I think COVID has really just sort of ripped the, the Band-Aid off it and, uh, you know, opened the can of worms for us all to see. But it's been, it hasn't just come overnight. Um, if you look at what happened prior to 100 years ago, um, yeah. like prior to the Industrial Revolution, when we aged, uh, you know, life expectancy was very different. 100 years ago, the life expectancy for a woman was 50 and for a man was 47. I passed you know, my years by I'm, day. <laughs> I'm living on borrowed time too. So ageing wasn't really an issue. Life, we're obviously increasing in an age. We're an ageing population and due to uh, improvements in medical care and sanitation and living conditions, life expectancy now for a woman is 84, um, 80 for a, a man. So we are living longer, but ageing occurs at a cellular level. It's inevitable. So we can't extend life indefinitely. But we can cure certain diseases. And it ultimately, this means that our aging population are living longer, more with chronic disease and frailty and disability. If you wind back to more than 100 years ago, if you were lucky enough to live that long, you were looked after probably in your extended family and, and, and sort of died in the, the bosom of your extended family, as long as you didn't cause too much trouble. For the destitute, the poor, there were benevolent asylums, which are sort of charitable organisations that basically gave basic shelter and, and food to, to people who were, who were destitute. But increasingly during the 1890s and the beginning of the, the um, 1900s, there were increasing number of, of elderly who were being sort of dumped in these asylums, mm. if you like, a few sort of knock and run drop offs, if you like. And so that aged care was starting to be outsourced even at, um, even at that time. And after the Second World War, the, the federal government started funding aged care through income tax. And this sort of started this sort of quiet shift towards aged care as we're starting to recognise it and actually more towards sort of for-profit organisations. But a big shift happened in the 80s and 90s with the closure of the sort of the geriatric wards in public mm. hospitals. Yeah. 
and the psychogeriatric wings of, of asylums. And although these probably weren't, uh, you know, the ideal places to, to end up, undoubtedly they were places where there was a lot of skill, um, a lot of experience. Um, and this is where the knowledge about aging and, and how to uh, treat the sort of diseases of, of the elderly and particularly in dementia care were. So what happened then was that care was shifted into the community, into um, into more of a home-based, uh, you know, community home or nursing home-based yeah. environment. But what didn't go with them was the expertise, the medical and nursing expertise. Mm. Um, and so what we were doing, what we saw was an increasing shift towards untrained staff um, away from basically they took the nurses out of nursing homes at a time when most people entering nursing homes really had high care needs. There were increasingly complex medical uh, conditions and uh, obviously dementia and the problems that come with managing the behaviours of, yes. of dementia. So we're seeing an untrained workforce, a loss of expertise in the community, um, an ageing population with complex medical needs treated in organisations that are increasingly run along the bottom line for profit and um, mm. where saving money, um, you know, is an issue. And so I suppose it's easy to see how that has created this sort of state of, you know, neglect. Oh, it's interesting because the nursing home that my mother is in is actually a not-for-profit nursing home and the care there has been phenomenal. I can't fault it. It has been, they're just amazing. So, Joanna... What are some of the alternatives to nursing homes? So, look, there are alternatives to, to nursing homes. And, and this is really depends on your level of need. It, it also actually depends on your ability to, to, to pay somewhat. And it also um, is heavily reliant on how fit you are. And old age isn't homogeneous. I mean, people yeah. age at different rates and in different ways. And there are some 80-year-olds who are very active in the community, have a very active lives, you know, exercise, still employed, you know, performing a multiple of, of roles. Um, and there are some that who are very frail or perhaps living with dementia who are requiring high level care. So I think given the choice, most people would prefer to stay in their own home, at least as long as they were able to. And there are schemes in place to help people to do that. Um, and at the very, most simple, it's um, something uh, called the Commonwealth Home Support Programme. Mm -hmm. And this can provide sort of aid for, for simple things, really, um, some basic sort of personal care, help around the home, you know, providing uh, walking aids, that kind of thing, and basic meals. My husband is um, a volunteer for the Benevolent Society. He delivers yeah. meals on wheels twice a week and and so this is something that uh, makes an awful lot of difference to people older people living in the community and nutrition is a you know a huge um key to aging well so that is your sort of basic entry level if you like and when needs become higher, we really move on to home care packages here. Mm. And there's four levels of home care packages from the, really the most basic up to level four, which is a high care. And this is really one of the uh, findings or, um, that was sort of un highlighted by the Royal Commission that there was a waiting list for home care packages of over 100,000 people. Yeah. 
Um, so there really this required a, a, a sort of rationing, if you like, because there's um, a lack of you know, qualified home care providers. There are, there are an awful lot of, of, of different providers and it can be difficult to, to navigate. And a lot of it will depend on your um, ability to pay. But if you were waiting for a fully care, um, funded home care package, the wait can be up to two to three years for a, a level four package. And in yeah. that time, some people do end up needing that higher level care sooner and either having to pay for it for themselves or to move to a nursing home. Um, yep. So home care packages are, is certainly an alternative. We've just been through this and I've learned so yeah. much and, it, and most <laughs> of it fell onto my sister's shoulders. And firstly, if you're elderly or needing these packages and, and you might not be you know, you might not be in your 80s or 90s, you might be in your 60s or 70s, but if you need these packages and you don't know where to start looking for them, it can be really tough. You know, the, the information isn't, isn't easy to get hold of. And then applying for these packages, as you say, some of them, there is a lengthy wait. And I know still for a level four, there is a huge weight, especially in regional areas. That's right. I mean, really, the system is difficult to navigate and it, it really requires a family member to advocate in the vast majority of cases by the time people get to need these yes. services, uh, you know, they may have some cognitive impairment and it does rely on somebody who, let's face it, is good with computers and can find their way around the mind. Oh, no. My and aged care government website, which is the portal uh, for entry, which does have an awful lot of information on it. But it, it, let's face it, it's confusing. It's aimed to be user friendly, but not for necessarily for people who are, uh, you know, not computer literate, uh, who are, you know, in their 80s, 90s, who, who would find this an extreme challenge. And that's the thing, you know, I don't, it's not designed for people to be able to help themselves really, especially, you know, I know my mother was good with a computer till she was about 88, but still she couldn't have navigated what was needed to get through. And I know the frustration that my sister went through at times. And then the difference between if you are self-funded or if you're on a pension and for self-funded people, you know, it can be really costly to have these packages in place. And then it becomes once you get into the nursing home, if you are self-funded, it's a lot of money involved in, in keeping up the payments to be in there. It is. You're, you're right. And your point is it generally does sort of fall on the, the shoulders of, of one um, family member to, to try and navigate this. Um, Yes, it is, it is expensive. There are very few fully funded, less than 5% of, of nursing home beds are, are actually fully funded in government facilities. Although having said that, you know, the government facilities actually score very highly, you know, in terms of quality and, and safety, but it's really in terms of access to that. Um, yeah. So, yes, you, it comes down, unfortunately, to how much you can pay. And there's certainly an argument for 
whether people who have paid taxes all their lives, who suddenly find themselves having to pay large sums of money at the end of their life for, for aged care, whether that's fair and, and equitable. And I think that's one of the things that the Royal Commission were looking at in terms of, um, you know, tax levies and, uh, you know, Medicare levies or... Yeah. Um, well, it's definitely been something that we've looked at closely because it is not cheap to be in a nursing home. It, more than my salary most years for my mother to be, you know, my take-home salary for my mother to be in a nursing home. And she would be absolutely horrified to know that that's what she was paying. We don't well, actually tell her. There's a, there's a case of that. And, you know, just anecdotally from my own experience, you know, one of the things I hear time and time again from patients is that people just, they don't want to be a burden on their families. And so this is why I think that they, people are very reluctant to ask for help a lot of the time. And, and what they don't realise is that sometimes asking for help at an earlier stage, you know, uh, paying for some basic um, basic help can actually help to maintain independence uh, even longer. And, you know, what I often point out to older people is that they, you know, have made a, a down payment on, you know, receiving some care from their children, if you like, that they have invested years and years yes. of their lives to bringing up their children. Yes. But no, people are very reluctant to ask for help. They don't want to be a burden and then you know if they do end up living in a, an aged care facility uh, you know I've had people who you know are almost counting by the day and saying I can't afford to live here much longer and you know doctor how much longer am I going to live because I really want to leave something to my children and the longer I <laughs> the lesser yeah. will be to uh and it's just really a, a terrible uh situation where people are hoping they won't live too long in order to uh you know to hang on to their their finances yeah. but um we're in a you know it's very contradictory I know when my mother needed assistance and, and I, I'm talking from the experience that we've had and, and it has been very positive in, in most cases. And I want, I want that to be known. It hasn't been a hugely negative experience. You know, from starting with level one and as she needed more care, um, level one was someone came in a couple of times a week and they helped um, with things like cleaning the bathroom, making the bed, uh, those things that became too much for her and moving up into level two where a few more different jobs were, were made and they can even take them out for a coffee or just there for company right up to when my mother before she went into the nursing home was up to say a level three it was going to be quite a long wait to jump into level four as we discussed but she had someone coming five days a week twice a day and then once a day on the weekends. And honestly, the level of care was truly amazing. The men and the women that came to the house and helped her, you know, all, all the little chores that she needed doing, everything down to shopping, if that's what she required, were done. And I think that's a real comfort to people to know that they can stay in their house and have these things available to them. That's right. And, and as you say, a, a lot of the time, it sort of brings me on to, uh, you know, the, the subject that a lot of the care that is available is sort of, of a very high quality. Uh, mm. A lot of nursing home care is is very high quality and it certainly comes from a very largely very willing and, and in a lot of cases, very skilled workforce as well. Um, and of course, the Royal Commission was designed really to look at the, the state of aged care and what was wrong with it in order to sort of move forward with, with how it could be improved. 
And my uh, experience of, of aged care, I suppose, is a little bit of a fly on the wall uh, sort of uh, approach. As a, a GP, I was in a very privileged position. I would be able to walk into people's homes who were receiving these services or walk into aged care facilities and talk to people about their experiences. I could witness these experiences and, and what was going on. And I was a, a fairly good judge, I suppose, from that point of view of what sort of what the quality of care and services were. And what I suppose disturbed me was that this was very variable. I call it the good, the bad and the ugly of aged care. I saw some people who were being treated absolutely wonderfully, who were having a wonderful experience, who were very happy, had nothing but praise for the care that they were receiving. They were in you know, beautiful homes, not always the most expensive. You can't judge a facility by the quality of its yeah. artwork or its furniture or its furnishings. They're but just were comfortable, were well looked after, the food was appetizing, they were stimulated, they were experiencing friendships and were generally very satisfied. And, and it always came away from those places, you know, feeling optimistic and, and hopeful and felt that in turn I was able to do a good job. But what I also saw was the flip side of that. Some other places which were also aesthetically very pleasing where I could literally walk in the door and struggle to find a staff member. I would go and see my patient. I would talk to the, well, my, my patient or the resident. I would talk to them. I would, you know, walk into the office, look for the drug chart, still not see a nurse or a, a staff member. I could change medications. I could, uh, you know, change treatment protocols. I could ha often have to leave notes for for staff if I couldn't get hold of any and when I did see staff I was often as often sort of counseling them overworked and burnt out staff who were feeling mm. demoralized and ineffective you know they wanted to do a job this was something that they were passionate about but they just weren't being supported um, and, and by through staffing numbers or the the backup of, of management or the facilities and this was reflected in the experiences of the the residents or the patients and there were some times that I came away feeling overwhelmed that I would sort of literally be in tears on, on my way home and so oh. what I wanted what I wanted to do I, I wrote a book called The Great Escape from Woodland's oh. Nursing Home which was actually came out <laughs> as the interim report into the Royal Commission was being published, which was called a, a shocking state of neglect. And, and what I'd inadvertently done in the book, uh, I won't talk too much about the book, was examined all the things that I had noticed and sort of suggested in some way uh, alternatives or whimsical solutions uh, to these. It's something that was very personal to me I took away that experience it was very personal and I felt that if it was possible to give such good care and and have such wonderful facilities for some why wasn't that the case across the board and I think that this is you know excellence is achievable it's not something that yeah. you know this sort of uh, unicorn it, it, it is something that is achievable and should be available across the board to every citizen. And um, that is really what my motivator was for, for becoming involved with, with aged care and talking about it.
you raised so many great points then because the things that you were talking about the positives in the in some of the places that you've been into has been my experience where my mother is and I said my mother's in a nursing home that's a not-for-profit nursing home but she has stimulation there's always something to do there whether it be a walking group or a knitting group or a trivia group or but there's so many things there for her to do and choose. And what we have done is encourage her to go. And we've asked the staff to, you know, check on her and make sure she is going. Yes, and exactly. And it must give you great peace of mind to know that she is happy and, and she's receiving um, good care there. Um, but the, one of the problems for people who are choosing um, a facility and um, often we'll say that this happens very late on, uh, you know, when the crisis has happened and, yes. you know, we're, often families are trying to choose a facility when their loved one is sort of in hospital recovering from their, their broken hip. Um, you know, having the ACAT assessment in, in hospital. And it may be that there isn't a lot, there isn't a great deal of choice at that mm. stage. Um, and it's not made easy for families or consumers because there isn't uh, a star rating system. You know, oh. there are, there is accreditation and there are basic safety and quality standards that, um, you know, are basically on a sort of a, a very basic. And they look at things like, uh, you know, whether there are, you know, falls, pressure sores, unintended weight loss. And there's a very limited number of things that they are judged on. What there isn't is uh, a gauge for families to compare one facility to another, a star system, if you like. You know, what is the oh. food like here? How happy are people are? What what are the level of complaints? Are there assaults here? You know, so so that was one of the, I think, recommendations, one of the 148 recommendations of the Royal Commission was that, that's more transparency when people are trying to compare facilities one against the other. And I often one of the things that is a hallmark of the whole facility and the level of care um, is the food and the quality of the food. Mm. And when I'm talking to when I'm talking to patients or residents, this is the one thing that I hear the most complaints about. And yet it's such a fundamental human right, isn't it, mm. to, to, have oh, yeah. sort of, to eat, to, to food. And when your day really doesn't have a great deal in it, you know, one of the things that people look forward to is, is a meal and maybe a warm meal at the end of the day. And some of the reports and photographs of, of some of the food in facilities that was presented, you know, a couple of sandwiches and a party pie or it's really sort of mush. I mean, it was really looking like uh, something that you wouldn't be, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't serve to any human being let us alone someone who maybe have lost their appetite through illness who may be needing nutrition to help mm. them heal keep muscle mass that kind of thing so you know there's a I think there was a um, a dietitian who uh, did research on a 108 uh, sorry 800 aged care facilities and she found that on average homes were only spending six dollars a day on food for a resident you know and if you look at other adults in the community you know generally people on average eat 17 dollar uh, uh, per day of food um, yeah. and you know it, it's two dollars less than is spent on prisoners in in prison on food so you know and the other thing is that if you even provide the food you have to have the level of staff there who, with the patients to help those that need 
help to eat and drink often it's left out of reach and and people just can't they just cannot eat it or, or digest it un, unassisted yeah and maggie beer has done a lot on this the maggie beer foundation ha has really highlighted a, a look in, in depth at how nutrition can be improved in nursing homes so i was very lucky to hear her speak in, in person um, a couple of years ago on this very subject. So that's really encouraging. I didn't know that at all. Uh, you know, I know like um, it, where my mother is, they get morning tea and afternoon tea, etc. And she loves a milkshake. And uh, yes, yeah, she gets her milkshake brought around to her. And I think it has some um, some supplements in it that, you know, mm -hmm. for nutrition because my, she's very tiny and, um, you know, she can't eat a lot. She looks forward to that when it comes in the morning, her, her milkshake. As you said, one of the things they need to, you know, to have is good nutrition and good food because they do look forward to it. It's also a social thing, isn't it? Sharing oh, a yeah. meal together is yes. sort of part of community and, and, and connection. And, um, you know, I did hear one awful story about a facility that showed photographs of the wonderful rack of lamb that they were having for lunch um, and obviously rel relatives that came past thought how wonderful it is but in fact the rack of lamb was being paraded through the dining room to a private dining room where they were giving that to the executives and, and shareholders where the rest of the residents were receiving sort of mints or something oh, like that God. So, but you know that's the worst but otherwise there are uh, I think if if residents are happy with the food then an awful lot else can be forgiven three takeaways for um, our guests that are listening today what would you say about this topic i would say look i would urge people to think ahead nobody wants to think about getting old but there's um it's never too early to start aging well. And I'm talking to people in their you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s to start thinking positively about aging and to look after themselves and adopt sort of healthy habits, but to um, to not leave it too late to plan for their old age. And that includes age care as well, to talk to families about what you do want, what you don't want, what's important to you to plan ahead, to look around facilities if it looks as though you may need nursing home care um, so that you have some element of, of choice. So that would be would be one. The other one is um, to that, look, I'm hopeful, but not necessarily 100% optimistic, but I'm hopeful that the Royal Commission with its, it had, if you print out the, the final report of the Royal Commission, it weighs 9.7 kilograms. So there was an awful lot <laughs> that came away from that. And I'm certainly not going to go into all the minutiae. And it's there, for, uh, you know, for the public to read if anybody was was interested. And I certainly don't claim to be um, to have any expertise in, in particularly interpreting that. But I think that um, there is. Um, a willingness to fundamentally change the way that aged care is designed and governed and provided. Um, I think the Australian community uh, is entitled to expect better. And I'm really 
I'm hopeful for the future. I think if we include some innovation, you know, some different ways of looking at providing care, creating sort of age-friendly communities, um, you know, and encouraging people to have opinions and input, uh, you know, listening to older people in what about what's important to them. I really feel that this has been a pivot point and that, that what is ahead is, um, is going to be a good outcome. It may take some time. And the third thing is I want us to think more broadly. It's it's time for a whole paradigm shift in the way we view old age. And I think that ageism is at the, the very core of the, the findings of the Royal Commission um, in what's wrong with aged care, what's what's right. And I think that we need to start calling out ageism. Um, examining, you know, overt ageism, but also that internalised ageism that, you know, older people sort of feel that they're a burden, that they're older, they mm. don't have anything to uh, to, um, to give back to um, the community or economy, uh, that take away this idea that, that the ageing population is a burden, say this is what it is. It's not a case of can we afford to give good care to the ageing population? It's a case of this is what it's going to cost. Now, how are we going to pay for it? This is what everyone deserves. So I think let's call out ageism and let's start treating um, the entire aged population as something of value. There is so much good advice in everything that you've said today, and it's really you could go on and on and on discussing um, these ageing, you know, the whole process of ageing. And I know that there's a lot of people think it's all doom and gloom. I know you don't think that and I don't <laughs> think that, but some people do think that ageing is all doom and gloom. There's so many good things that come out of ageing. And for me, I find the older I get, the calmer I get. I can look at life differently. I look at young people differently. There's so much joy in being older. Do you agree? Oh, I absolutely do. Yes, I'm certainly much more confident than I was when I was younger. And, you know, I think we reach our happiest at 82, apparently, according to a study that I read recently. So I feel that there is plenty to, to look forward to. And I've uh, based my whole writing career on writing or trying to write uplifting and hopeful stories about um, ageing. So I'm, yes, look, I am immensely hopeful and, and optimistic and there is plenty of good about uh, about getting older. And Joanna, would you come back and talk to us again? I've, as I said earlier, when we started this interview, there is so many things that you've um, written about, different books that you've, you've published, and there are the 10 myths about ageing that I would love to discuss with you. Are you happy to come back? I would love that. I really would love that opportunity. Yes. I mean, today we've talked about some of the not so good things about the aged care system, but I have so much that I'd love to share with you and talk to you about, yeah, particularly some of the myths of ageing. Our interview today, my interview today is with Dr. Joanna Nill. She is an author and a novelist. She writes novels largely related to ageing, correct, Joanna? That seems to be somebody said I've invented my own genre, but it's really where my interest and fascination took me. 
And thank you for shedding some light on the aged care system, the Royal Commission, nursing homes. Having gone through this just so recently myself this year with my mother, and uh, thank God for my sister because she has put in an enormous amount of time and effort to make sure that my mother is in the right place and being well cared for. And the positive is there are places out there that are um, wonderful facilities and uh, hopefully other people will have such a great experience just as we have had. And Dr. Joanna Nell, thank you for coming on to the Aging Fearlessly program. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thanks, Karen. So cheers for now. This is Karen Sander. Until next time. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside. There's a sparkle in It's not all nine to five, it's a wonderful life. Let's go and climb mountains high, swim across oceans wide. Live out our dreams, just you and me. Let your heart be alive. There's no time to Gotta go get the most out of time Don't be afraid Like this treasure that you've got to find Baby, don't be shy Let's go and take that ride Taste the sweet and the spice Everything nice Let your heart let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.